what I'd said is you can't predict success. What I can do is identify characteristics that are really likely to lead to failure. And these are all what these characteristics have in common is they're all what I call false signals, right? They're things that make someone look more impressive and more capable than they actually are. And the four that I identified, again, in 2012, the four that I identified were personality and psychological disorders, where the examples I used were narcissism and psychopathy, out of the mainstream or highly simplistic ideologies, an extremely risk-prone or incompetent managerial style, and uh, unearned advantages like inherited wealth. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast, Sid Finkelstein, with another episode of the SIDCast. And uh, this is a little bit of an unusual episode because um, maybe, uh, I don't know, two or three months ago, we actually recorded a live session for um, a big audience with our guest today. And we were live and then we recorded it and have tinkered a touch with it and now can offer it as a regular episode of the SIDCast. And my guest was and is Gautam Makanda. Gautam is <laughs> one of these... Uh, Renaissance men who does all sorts of uh, interesting people. Where to start? Let's see. He's a uh, research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School, um, Center for Public Leadership. He's host of the NASDAQ podcast, World Reimagined with Gautam Makanda. He was a professor at Harvard Business School. He was a distinguished visiting professor um, in a university in China. He's the author of a couple of books, one called Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. Uh, that was in 2012. And this year, a book called Picking Presidents, which uh, has uh, just come out in 2022. He's published articles uh, pretty much uh, everywhere, uh, including Harvard Business Review, Slate, Fast Company, and Synthetic Biology. And it's the last one is kind of interesting because uh, it just kind of highlights how he does all sorts of, uh, has such a kind of diverse uh, background. And he focuses on, uh, yes, leadership, but also reforming the financial sector, military innovation. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. Um, warfare, security and economic implications of synthetic biology, and a bunch of other things. His work's been profiled in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Economist, Wall Street Journal, and even All Things Considered on NPR. That's just the beginning of a long list of things that he does, uh, has done. I mean, he was a champion on Jeopardy, among other things. He was very involved at MIT, where he did receive his uh, PhD. He volunteers both as an overseer of the Boston Ballet and a member of the Museum Council of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, his hand is in a lot of different things and just such an interesting person who kind of defines, for me, intellectual curiosity. I love that. I love talking to people like that. One of the reasons I started the SIDCast in the first place is to just have these types of kind of eclectic conversations with smart, interesting people. And we go in a lot of different directions and, uh, and we learn a lot. We learned a lot from each other in the conversation. And I know that uh, you're going to learn and kind of uh, get into the uh, Gautamakanda web of thinking and, uh, uh, and mindset. He's a podcaster. I mentioned that as well. 
and uh, and it's interesting to kind of talk shop a little bit there as well. But this background in biotech, and uh, we talk about COVID, we talk about the vaccines uh, as well, and um, oh my goodness, so many other topics. So it's kind of like a freewheeling, sit back and just kind of see the uh, Gotham uh, neurons firing and on all cylinders, and just enjoy the conversation. Uh, Gotham Akunda on the Sitcast. Sid, I am great, and it is absolutely a pleasure to be here with you. Um, it's, it's an honor to be here with you. I try to count how many times I've cited your work, and I kind of gave up after a while, but it was a lot. So <laughs> yeah, funny. Well, let me share a little bit with our audience on um, some of the things you're up to. So uh, you're a research fellow at uh, Harvard's Kennedy School, uh, which is a center for public leadership. Uh, you're the host of the NASDAQ podcast, World Reimagined. You are a professor at HBS. You're the head of research. This is a new gig added to the list. Head of research at Rose Park Advisors, which when we we're just chatting before, you reminded me, and I kind of remembered it a little bit, that that is Clay Christensen, the legendary um, Harvard professor. Uh, that is uh, his investment group, and you're head of research of that. You've written a couple of books. Actually, there's a new book coming out that I do want to talk about called Picking Presidents. You've published articles all over the place from Places as diverse as, I don't know, foreign policy, slate, and systems, and synthetic biology, which is not necessarily one that's going to go together with the others, but you've done that. Uh, your work has been profiled all over the place, and you have a long list of different uh, activities. You're a principal investigator for the NSF, and, a, uh, and here's that synthetic biology topic again, Engineering Research uh, Center. You have a PhD from MIT in political science, focusing on international relations and security studies. You are an overseer of the Boston Ballet, a member of the Museum Council of Boston's Museum of Fine Arts. I'm only um, talking about a few of the things, really, some of the highlights. You started off early on as a consultant for McKinsey. The list goes on. So what I have to ask you right from the start is, I mean, what gives? How come you're doing so much stuff? How do you manage that? Uh, people, you know, somebody, I, people ask me that question. My answer is I'm interested in everything and I have poor impulse control. So I tend to say yes when somebody gets that to me. The broader answer is I think I really do believe this both as a matter of inclination and as a matter of research that in a world of specialists, there is a real advantage to being a generalist and sort of academia in particular cultivates specialists, right? Like we are supposed to be specialists. And this was a thing I always had to deal with where I was interested in lots of things. I just didn't want to do one thing. So at my PhD program, I essentially did two simultaneous research programs. I had one in leadership, which led to my first and my second books, and one on innovation and science technology policy, which led to a bunch of peer-reviewed papers, which literally had no overlap with the books, uh, other than I thought they were all interesting. And when I think of your work, I think of leadership, but I know you've done a lot of stuff outside of that. So I imagine you can speak to this, because I think of leadership because that's where I've encountered it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, yeah. it's just sort of, you know, there is so much interesting stuff happening in the world. It doesn't seem like any fun to just do one thing for all the time. I definitely am a big fan of gaining a variety of experiences and doing different things. I think that learning is tremendous. Uh, I've had on the SIDCAST some guests who've talked about zigzagging in careers. I don't think I would say you're zigzagging as much as you're kind of doing it all at once, which is a little bit different. But one thing that I wonder about and that I always think about when I look at people's careers and that stuff they're doing is what's the common theme? Now, for you, it's going to be curiosity. I think that's kind of the headline. I got that and I'm kind of the same way. And sometimes that common theme is not the intention at the beginning. 
sometimes it is sometimes. But when you look back and you say, okay, you know, I kind of understand why I'm doing this and why I'm interested in that. Have you thought about what some of those commonalities are across some of these endeavors? I mean, not necessarily everything, but something that's close to the center. So I have, and um, I think there's an intellectual commonality, both sort of in subject matter and then in approach, right, is the way I would put it. You could kind of unite all of the different work that I've done and the intellect, you know, sort of intellectual work I've done under the rubric of leadership and innovation, right? Sort of almost everything I did is on one of those two things in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. And I actually do think that those two are at a base level kind of intimately linked because leaders mm-hmm. can sort of spur their organizations to innovate in a variety of ways. But it's also true that much sort of many of the ideas and my work on innovation ended up playing a large role in the theory I built on leadership, right? That much of the intellectual underpinnings of that work on leadership stuff mm-hmm. actually draws from corporate finance, right? And thinking about the world and reading about when I was going into, you know, McKinsey, reading a lot about corporate finance and trying to get smart on that and realizing that this set of concepts, mm-hmm. while, you know, maybe not as valid in the corporate finance world as we like to think, hence, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, had a lot of things to say about other parts of the world that sort of manifested in the leadership work. The other one is, I wouldn't say that I have a process, but I have a tendency, which is, I like to take a look at really important issues that I think that we don't understand and say, can I make, get real traction on this? Can I make a contribution, you know, not just as an intellectual puzzle, but as something that actually is going to have an impact in the world outside of the academy by taking a different approach, right? So like, I have great respect for all the people who are specialists in a field. And I'm like, they're really smart. I am not so smart that I can go into biology and learn and do the stuff the way the biologists do and learn anything Mm -hmm. they already know. You know, that's that's never going to happen. But if I look at biological problems the way a political scientist would, then maybe I can learn a lot from that. When I, with Clay Christensen's, who I, you know, has obviously been sort of was the great mentor of the last, I guess, almost 15 years of my life at this point, right? It was, okay, he created a theory about companies that when do they fail and how do they innovate? And I said, well, okay, if you look at that, the way political scientists are trying to look at theories, which is make them, make them more abstract, right? Drill them out, strip out all the stuff that's domain specific and see if you can make it more abstract. What do you learn? And the answer is you learn a lot. And that is, I think, a consistent pattern across all the stuff that I do is right. taking and just doing, seeing if you could look at something differently and see what comes out. I really like that idea. It makes me uh, think a little bit about creativity and how, uh, or innovation, if you want, what is it really? And it kind of like a regeneration of ideas in a different way. It's taking an idea from one area and moving to another, uh, whether that's in the lab or that's in a different country or that's a different industry, or in your case, a different problem. I think there's like a ton to learn. Most people, I don't know if this is a specialist thing specifically, but most people, they got their head down, even the smartest people, and they are becoming masters and experts in their areas, which is good. But I don't think they end up asking some of the questions that some of them will be dead ends because it won't make any sense. But some of them will say, wow, why don't we think about it that way? I mean, I've kind of done that in kind of my own sphere for a long time. You know, I think about teaching, for example, and higher education in the context of the music industry is one example. In the music industry, where's the money? The money is all in live performances. It's not the firm streaming, unless you're, you know, Taylor Swift or Adele or uh, Lady Gaga, you're not making a ton of money from streaming, but you are making a lot of money by being on the road and putting on that performance. Now, being in the classroom, it's not exactly a performance, but I always say that it's got to be something more than you can possibly get by seeing some video of me talking about, you know, whatever the topic is. So I think it's smart. I think it's a good idea. And I want to ask you something when you say leadership innovation. Can you be a great leader if you're not innovative? Are there examples of such a thing? Do you yeah, think I th- it's possible? 
I do think it's possible. Um, the person who springs to mind is the British uh, soldier, the Duke of Wellington, who was the guy who beat Napoleon, right? On you know, well, at Waterloo and beat every one of mm-hmm. Napoleon's marshals in the years leading up to Waterloo. He fought about 40 major battles in his career, and he won every single time. Right. And he was outnumbered for most of it. He was just extraordinarily skilled commander. If you had told the Duke that he had never had an original idea in his life, he probably would have taken it as a compliment. Right. Like he was not a person who was interested in new ideas or innovation. He was profoundly conservative. What he was better at execution. Right. In terms of being on a battlefield and getting it right. Then I would say probably anyone else who's ever lived. You know, he must have had a computer for brain and ice water for blood because he didn't get rattled and he never ever made a mistake. And I think it is possible to be an extraordinarily successful leader, and obviously he was, without being innovative. It's harder, right? When you ask me the question, he's the guy who came to mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many other names I could come up with, because if you do the same thing as everyone else, it is, I think, difficult or impossible to produce unique results. You then must have some ability to execute the same thing everyone else does better than everyone else. And even if you can do that, you probably can't mm-hmm. do it for very long because everyone yeah, else yeah, is going to be yeah, learning from you. It's a great point. You know what? You really have to be, if, if that's your game plan, to be a leader that's not innovative, you better hope you're staying in a sphere or an area that doesn't change too much. And I don't know, I'm not familiar with too many of those areas in 2022. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's shift gears a little bit. I mentioned you written a couple of books. I'm very interested in, well, I'm interested in both, but there's one that's coming out this year, I mean, yeah. in October, uh, and it's called Picking Presidents. I mean, what is that about? So what it really is about is trying to use everything we've learned in political science and in management and in psychology and, you know, lots of all these lots of different fields mm-hmm. synthesized with the, my own theories on leadership selection that were sort of built out in the first book to see if you can create an objective way to evaluate presidential candidates and sort of answer the question, you know, do we feel confident that he or she can do the job? Not, you know, do would I vote for this person? Because, you know, you can be from a different party and I wouldn't vote for you. But do I feel confident that if you do win, even if I don't, you're not my candidate, you know, the country is not in peril. You will be able to do the job successfully. And I think the answer is yes, you can. It is possible to create that objective framework uh, that you evaluate candidates using only information that's sort of publicly and contemporaneously available. Right. I think it is possible to do that. Uh, And that's what the book is about. The motivation, other than, again, I think it's really important, right? I think it's really, really important to make sure we have people in senior executive positions who are capable of doing the job. The motivation actually sprang from my first book, which was published in 2012 and looked at sort of leaders who I call high impact leaders, leaders who have enormous impacts on the organization um, that they lead for better or for worse. And so this is, of course, where I, you know, where I cite you all over the Mm -hmm. place in that book. And what I found was that, so again, I want to emphasize, The book was published in 2012. There is nothing about contemporary politics of the last six or seven years that that was possibly in my mind or could have been in my mind when I conceived of, wrote, or published the book. Like that is, there's no way. So it is important to say that. But in the book, what I said is that both the best and the worst leaders are what I call unfiltered. People who take power in an organization without being fully evaluated that organization's elites or who those elites don't get a chance to say, we don't want this person. And what I said is, if you have someone like that, they can be very, very different from all the other people who might have the job. And because they are very different, they can make decisions that are very, very different from all the other people who might have had the job. And these decisions, this again is is drawing from corporate finance, these decisions tend to be either really great or really awful. 
They're usually not in the middle, right? They're not very rarely boring. And so, you know, I published this book in 2012. And then in 2016, we elect someone who looks like he stepped out of the pages of this book to a really extraordinary extent. And it gets a little bit even more so when uh, and in the end of the book, I kind of said, really great or really awful. That's intellectually interesting. But if you're a board of directors, it's not the most helpful advice in the world, right? Like you'll either be the best or the worst CEO in your history, but I don't know which. And so what I said, is, is there anything we can do that allows us to predict which one it's going to be? And I think my answer is to a large extent, no, because luck matters, right? Like luck is really important in these things. Mm -hmm. But what I'd said is you can't predict success. What I can do is identify characteristics that are really likely to lead to failure. And these are all what these characteristics have in common is they're all what I call false signals, right? They're things that make someone look more impressive and more capable than they actually are. And the four that I identified, again, in 2012, the four that I identified were personality and psychological disorders, where the examples I used were narcissism and psychopathy, out of the mainstream or highly simplistic ideologies, an extremely risk-prone or incompetent managerial style, and uh, unearned advantages like inherited wealth. Mm. So that was the four things that I said, if you have any one of those four, you should be really, really concerned and probably don't elect this person or hire this person, you know, and then things happen. So that, let's just say that motivated me to take, all, take a much closer look at the presidency. Yeah, it seems like people are listening and saying, check, 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 yeah. and check. So first of all, this idea, maybe this comes from the first, from your first book, this idea that you're going to get really um, widely divergent results from certain people based on, you know, their, I guess they're, they're fit to some extent. There is a little bit of research. Um, I don't even remember where I found this. It was probably more around family-run businesses uh, where when you give tremendous power or the CEO, let's call it, has tremendous power, that person will be more likely because there are fewer checks and balances. That person will be more likely to have an extreme result. Yeah. And it could be great or it could be terrible, right? And generally speaking, uh, People are not crazy about doing that, with the one exception being venture capitalists who are perfectly happy with that type of result. That's kind of interesting. But the other thing that you're saying about, you know, this picking presidents, it makes me think about, because you said you could identify all this from publicly available information. You don't have to interview the person, for example, no. or interview 25 people that, uh, you know, you don't have to do investigative journalism to, to get a sense of that. I'm quite attracted to that idea more not necessarily or only in this context, but more generally, because I mean, a number of years ago, maybe you've had some false starts uh, in various places where you've experimented. I've experimented a lot of things. And one idea I once had, and I actually did it in early days, was create a hedge fund using not just my own research, but all the research on leadership that was out there in the management, accounting, finance, organizational behavior literature that has identified factors that lead to success or failure on the part of a CEO. And to integrate all of that, and to look for publicly traded information or public information, let's call it, to be more precise, and then develop a model. And we only got in early stages of it. But I thought it was like, a, I always thought it was a cool idea. And it sounds like, you know, for at least one aspect of that, you're kind of doing that. Is this something that, you know, you work with Rose, um, is it Rose Partners? Is that Rose, the name of Rose it? Park, yeah. Rose Park. Yeah. I mean, they're not in the business of picking presidents, but they are in the business of caring a lot about CEOs. Yes. Um, is that why they wanted you in part? Or is it because you've been doing this research for a while that it's led to picking presidents that it's kind of a natural learning? I mean, how, does that tie in together? So it will. I'm still very, very new. I started last week. So I'm still, I think we're still <laughs> learning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and Rose Park has never had a head of research before. So we're trying to figure out what that role means. 
Um, so the, the real tie there is to back to Clay, Clay Christensen. So Clay was my mentor who became my friend um, for the last 15 years of his life, I guess, maybe even longer than that. And my first published work was on taking his ideas and adapting them to militaries. And so he and I built a relationship where we kept engaging and trying to push his ideas forward in lots of different ways. And Rose Park uses his ideas. So, you know, Clay was well, very generous in saying there were only a few people who had made, you know, contributions to the theory beyond him. And he, he was very generous in saying, you know, I was one mm -hmm. of them. So, you know, for a firm that whose raison d'etre is applying Clay's theories, it made sense to bring, you know, bring his protege, I guess, in to work on it. Um, I certainly do believe, and I think we all believe that it should be possible to, to take, add to that, these ideas of mm -hmm. leadership, right? And in fact, one of the findings and one of the arguments in my first book is essentially that organizations that exist in domains of limited losses and unlimited gains have a tendency to become far too risk averse, right? That if you are a venture capitalist and your worst case scenario is you, your investment goes to zero, I mean, that sucks, but that's your worst case. Your mm -hmm. best case scenario is you invested in Google or Amazon or Apple. And, you know, the, essentially your losses are bounded, but your gains are infinite, are potentially infinite. Um, and if you invested in Apple, not that far short of infinite. But venture capitalists aren't the only people who face this dilemma. Another example I would say would be scientific grant uh, giving organizations, right? So if you are giving grants to scientists to do their experiments, your worst case experiment is, you know, your worst case scenario is the grant, you know, the, the experiment, you don't learn anything, right? Well, that sucks. That's a wasted grant. But your best case scenario is they do an experiment that overturns our understanding of some field of science. And so what you see when you talk to scientists, particularly the most innovative scientists, is they constantly complain that grant giving organizations will only support conservative research because what they're judged by is sort of what fraction of their grants succeed. And what fraction of their grants succeed is not a relevant metric, right? The question is not how many small discoveries you make, it's how many big discoveries you make. You don't do that by supporting hot experiments that are of a high likelihood of success. The intellect, to me, the intellectual interpretation of that, then again, go back to corporate finance, right? Um, essentially, you could say that the experiments that have a high value of thing of success, they're like stocks that everybody believes in whose price has been bid up, um, right? You probably won't lose money by investing in, you know, a stock that has a very high valuation, but you're not going to make 50 or 100 times your money because it's already priced out into the market. There's a natural conservatism in academia, as you well know, and you're kind of giving a really good example of it in terms of funding of projects. I'm also reminded of a very different model, which is uh, Amazon. Um, and Jeff Bezos, who has, he would testify to Congress maybe two summers ago. He was lecturing them, basically, on how their business works. Um, and one of the things he said is what an experiment is. Uh, and he said an experiment, what he said, it's not an experiment, whatever the project is, not an experiment if you know it's going to succeed. Yeah. By definition, it's not an experiment. You have to be willing to fail. And Amazon, regardless of what we might think about some of the politics and the size of the company and market power and unionization and many other things, um, they have been an experiment, an experiment first company. They've taken these gigantic risks early on. They're not so gigantic now because they could afford it. Kind of like Google's moonshots, except yeah. I think Google was investing. I mean, I didn't look at the specific numbers, but I'm going to guess Google invested those eyeglasses, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And Amazon's a little bit more careful about their various experiments. But we don't really see too many companies operate that way. Google, we can make the argument, well, they make so much money from search that they could afford to do all these kind of fun things under their not quite new CFO anymore, Ruth Porat, who, by the way, was a classmate of mine at 
London School of Economics, they've reined that in. They're much more careful. Amazon has kind of made it a, a practice that they keep trying. I mean, as far as I could tell, they keep trying new things and some of them don't. What did they just close down? Their bookstores and some of their other retail the retail um, locker shops, yeah. Yeah, other than, you know, Whole Foods, and which is still kind of a central part of uh, a central leg for, for some of their business growth. They would have spent a lot of money doing that, and they were willing to do it. Most people, most leaders and most companies look at that as a failure, end of sentence, and a fear of being punished, and there's really nothing in it for them. What Amazon has done is created a culture where it's not just okay, but it's expected. That's a magical thing. You just don't see that a lot, I think, in corporate America. Oh, absolutely agree. Again, with all of your things about their power and you, but there was a wonderful interview Jeff Bezos gave after the failure of the Fire Phone, right? Which was a total fiasco. Yeah. They sold literally dozens of phones, right? I mean, I mean, it was just a disaster. And they, he was just, so I talked to some reporter and they said, well, what do you think about this gigantic failure? And his response was, if you think that was a failure, you haven't seen anything yet. We're going to fail so much bigger than that, you know, like, and if we mm -hmm. don't do that, we're not doing our job. I was so impressed to read this because, I mean, okay, yeah, you're Jeff Bezos. It's easier to say this when you're Jeff Bezos, right? There's no question. Like, you are the most successful business person since Steve Jobs, you know, people, because everybody, but it is nonetheless an expression of this approach that's really striking. And I agree with you. Google has, you know, really reeled back in that kind of wild innovation. And it's a fair critique that they put a lot of money in that. And they don't seem to have gotten a lot out of it, right? Like, it's like yeah. with Amazon, you can say, okay, they do these innovations, but. AWS was a product of that. And, you know, AWS is the most valuable part of Amazon. So they have a track record of one AWS pays for a lot of fire phones, right? And, and it, it's a reasonable critique of, of Google's approach that, you know, they don't seem to have had the same luck. But that being said, I'm sort of, if you are Google and you're sitting on what essentially is an infinite fountain of cash, right? Like you can give it back to shareholders or you can take you know, there's only so much money you can spend optimizing search. There must be some, you know, some outer limit to that. You can take crazy bets. And they've done a few, right? Calico seems like a striking example of someone taking this kind of bet. But I am always struck that they don't, you know, or, or I mean, they did. And maybe they're going to go back to this approach and say like, hey, let's do the stuff that only Google could do. You know, we can get the smartest people in the world. We can give them infinite resources. We can stick them in a room for 10 years and say, go do your thing. And you know, if it doesn't work out, we're still Google. And if it does work out, well, maybe we have a second Google on our hands. That seems like a good trade from my perspective. Yeah. And you just have to be disciplined yeah. and to build a culture with even calling it a moonshot. I mean, I understand why it's a pretty cool idea, but uh, it almost says, go ahead and spend a lot of money. It's okay to have a billion dollar bet. You also said something triggered a different thought. Have you been watching any of the TV series about the uh, Silicon Valley billionaires? There's one on Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. Uh, there's one on uh, Travis Kalanick. There's one on um, Adam Newman from WeWork. WeWork, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen a little bit of uh, the Travis the Uber one. I've seen most of the uh, Elizabeth Holmes one. I wrote a case study and I teach my the incoming MBA students at Tuck, a class specifically on Elizabeth Holmes and um, Theranos. Uh, and that's what I want to bring up because you said, you know, why don't, like Google, why don't we get the smartest people in the room, in the country, in the world, and get to work on this? And I had this conversation with my nephew just the other day, uh, and he said, why couldn't Theranos figure this out? Why did they just have to keep bluffing and faking and lying? Uh, surely there could have been a solution. And he said, there must be, if you brought the smartest people in the world, certainly they could have figured out how to make a machine that takes a small quantity of blood and does a diagnostic test for dozens and dozens of things. Uh, I may be going off of things you've ever studied or looked at, but 
I have a feeling you've thought about this as well. So, what, so what's your take? So I have, partly because I, I'm like so many other people obsessed by the Theranos story. My wife and I joke that we're wondering at what point the industry of stuff about Theranos will actually have generated more value than Theranos destroyed. Uh, and we, we may be heading in that direction. Um, so I will tell my Theranos story, which is why I was like, you know, my signal fairly early in, in its time that this was not going to work which is I was at the demo day for uh, the SOS Ventures, the venture fund that they had this really interesting idea where they were, you know, they were giving like $50,000 to teams of, of undergrads and grad students for the summer to try and build a biotech company. And, you know, 10 years earlier, even five years earlier, that idea would have been a joke. Like you couldn't do that. But the basic tools of manipulating life, you know, that we sort of go under the rubric of synthetic biology had advanced to the point where that was actually a plausible approach. And uh, of the 10 companies I saw present that day, I think two of them are actually still going, actually still like viable, you know, mm. meaningful companies. But one of them was a blood testing company. So, and this is like, again, think of it, this is like five, you know, five undergrads, maybe one grad student and a $50,000 budget. And so I'm actually talking with one of the other companies, but the blood testing company is literally like, you know, maybe this far away from me, right? Like six inches away from me. So I'm not eavesdropping, but they're literally having a conversation where mm -hmm. I cannot avoid over here. And this guy comes up to them. And he asks them all these technical questions about how do they do X and Y and Z and like how do they work on this and that and things like that. And he says, you know, uh, you know, that, and he kind of says, you know, I'm from Theranos. Are you accepting resumes? <laughs> and I was like, ding, 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 ding. This is not a good sign. <laughs> it was the Theranos person that was talking to the undergrads. Yes. To see if they knew something. Of, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Are you accepting resumes? I was like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, so that's my Theranos story. So I have an answer to your nephew's question. Why couldn't this problem have been solved with smartest yeah. people around. So when we think about technical issues, I think it's really important to differentiate between engineering problems and, and physics problems, right? Science mm -hmm. problems, but physics problems. So when you take a small sample of blood from a fingertip, right? You mm -hmm. are getting not just a very small volume of blood, you're also getting intracellular material that all comes into the sample. And what that means is your sample has a very large volume of noise, right? So at a basic level, it is not clear to me, it's not an engineering problem. Oh, if we just figured out a way, we could like extract out information from this, right? When you insert this much other material into the blood volume, you are actually destroying information. Like the information is no longer extractable from the sample because there are so many other components that have been added to it that look just like the blood to any sensor. So what that means is, you know, if you take one finger prick and then you take another finger prick with a different one, you will get very different results. Even you if get, you could identify and model every single molecule in your sample, which is of course mm -hmm. far beyond any technology we have today, right? Like the actual basic components of the sample are different. So could you do a lot more with small volumes than we currently do? I think you could, I'm sure you could, right? Could you do what Theranos was describing? I suspect that it is, you know, that at the, our current understanding of the under, of the physical realities of what we're doing, that is simply not possible, right? Not at any level of skill. So there's a lot of space between what we're doing now and what Theranos was promising. And I'm sure there are lots of valuable companies that will be created in that space in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, that's but, really interesting. So actually a pinprick of blood from the same person to different fingers will yield a different sample. I mean, I don't know that anyone's run the experiment, but I'd be stunned if it didn't, right? The example of tip, one of the reasons you bring out that much volume is because you smooth out the noise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's not 
with our present knowledge, um, a solvable problem. Because I think there are companies today that are still working on this type of idea, but they must be looking for some completely different technological solution. So it could be that, or they, you know, you could drop an order of magnitude in the blood volume we do normally and still get mm-hmm. a lot more than Theranos was claiming it was drawing, right? You could do discrete tests and, or, you know, so I suspect there are a lot, as a, what I just said is not an argument for, we cannot improve the blood testing industry. Right. It's an argument for, we just can't do what they were saying they were doing. Yeah, with their extreme solution. The other thing about this whole story, and I wonder what you think about this, because it is definitely around leadership, but it's also about public policy. Um, so I mentioned these three TV shows that have been on um, about uh, Adam Newman from WeWork, about Travis Kalanick from Uber, both of whom were pushed out uh, for, let's call it bad behavior, but both of whom are worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And Elizabeth Holmes, who's probably going to jail. Why is that? I mean, it is a fascinating question. I mean, Adam, you know, what, what did they say? He raised $10 billion to create an $8 billion company, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. The math works. Out. And like the differential, a huge chunk of the differential is just the money he extracted from WeWork, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my best friends was sort of said, hey, you know, I will destroy a billion dollars of value for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> you know, like, I can like, do that like, too. Will, Even yeah, a professor I can do that. Can yeah. do that. <laughs> and they will be way better off, right? You know, I would sign up for that. Um, so, so... I mean, the fundamental reason, it's easy to ascribe, and I think, I'm sure, you know, sexism has a lot to do with it, right? Or that, but the fundamental and basic reason, I think, more than anything else, is that she was working with patients, right? Like, when you give people bad information about their medical test results, you have done a very, very bad thing. Uh, and it is a thing that we legally go after pretty dramatic. It's true, but I think... I think the counts that she was found guilty yeah, right. on were about yeah. more defrauding investors. Yeah. Never mind all these poor people that got a life-changing in a very bad way diagnosis, yeah. uh, exactly. which is kind of amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, no, I, when you saw the verdicts, it was like, so the worst stuff is actually what she got off, she got off for? It was, it was quite striking. How many people in the Valley, res, their response to Silica to Elizabeth Holmes was like, you know, don't we all do this? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's sort of like, I mean, I hope that's not true, right? Like, I think yeah. that there is some... People who are sort of looking at it at a fairly superficial level and not getting mm-hmm. into the details of just how bad it actually was. Well, we right? talk about, you know, the old expression about fake it till you make it, make which it, yeah. is, you know, and that's been around as an idea. And uh, some people say that's what she did, uh, except, as you just said, there are human beings. This is healthcare. Uh, this is not IT, which is bad enough. But then, you know, just going down this path a touch more, look what Uber did or Airbnb. They broke the law. And actually, Uber really did some nasty stuff if this TV show was accurate with their attacks on privacy and consistent lying um, and using that data to protect themselves. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that there's stuff they did that is against the law. So let me kind of phrase the question to you this way, because I've thought about this a bit. Um, And this conversation with my nephew recently is also uh, fresh in my mind uh, because he brought it up as well. So is it often the case that innovative people and companies are the ones that are doing things that are illegal or unfair or inappropriate. Because you certainly see this, I think historically, I'll just make the case a little bit and then I'll let you deflate or inflate it as you wish. You look at spirits, alcohol, many of the top companies, the long lasting top companies started during prohibition, they broke the law. Um, Well, we don't have to go any further than Jay Gould and JP Morgan and all the other robber barons that built unbelievable uh, businesses. And there are a lot worse things that happen if you look at a lot of companies that were created based on uh, literally um, slave labor. And so terrible crimes were done, which makes kind of what Uber did, nothing in the scheme of things or everybody mean. Nonetheless, in the modern world, these are things that are happening. So the question is, you know, how clean are the hands of these founders yeah. uh, in, in these companies? 
So, I mean, it's hard not to argue that probably not that clean, right? I mean, you would certainly hope that for many, they're not. And the example that people always used was Steve Jobs, right? But during the founding stages of Apple in the early days, there's no parallel between that I am aware of between, you know, the sort of behavior that we saw at Uber or at Theranos and the early and, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, right? Like, I am not aware of anything that looks even remotely similar, right? Maybe Steve Jobs pushed the envelope a bit, but there's a, you know, that's very different from just faking your numbers and hiring private investigators to intimidate whistleblowers. So, but I feel like what, you know, the broader question that said that you're asking me is more like, what is happening in our society that business elites at what past a certain point seem to have become kind of above the law? And do we feel comfortable about that, right? So in the 2008 financial crisis, which I, you know, still my most cited work ever was an article about that, about, you know, financial reform and what we're doing wrong there. Mm -hmm. um, like the American financial sector blew up the world economy, right? The Federal Reserve's estimate is that on average, financial crisis cost every single American $70,000, right? Mm -hmm. They blew up the world economy. But we still feel the effects of that crisis, among other things, what's in our politics, right? Like you can draw a very direct line from the financial crisis, to the election of Donald Trump. Um, and the way we punished them was we gave them lots of money. And, you know, if you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. Like anger is an appropriate response to the scale of malfeasance that we saw. Michael Kinsley, I think, once had a great, had a great line that the scandal is not what's illegal, it's what's legal, Right. You could absolutely say that much of, you know, I, I'm actually pretty skeptical about this. And I think there's a, there's a bunch of good books that have made very powerful arguments that much of the behavior that led to the financial crisis was criminal and the Justice Department just chose not to prosecute it. But it's also true that much of the behavior that wasn't criminal wasn't criminal because the vast power of the American financial sector, one, you know, which vastly, you know, has much more power than any other segment of the American economy basically wrote the laws in such a way as to make their behavior not criminal, right? Like, of course, your behavior is not criminal if you are the person writing laws that describe what the behavior is. And I feel, you know, one could easily say that we sort of reached a point where we've just said, we are not going to, you know, like, if you are rich enough, we are not going to prosecute you. The worst example of this, much, you know, like many orders of magnitude worse than anything that Travis Kalanick or Elizabeth Holmes or Adam Newman did. And, you know, there is no comparison, right, is the opioid epidemic um, with the Sackler family. They are essentially in the process, right, as we speak, of buying their way out of prosecution, right, by this thing. We will give five or six billion dollars to, you know, to some settlement and the states will not prosecute us. But they made much more than five or six billion dollars right. selling these poisons, right? And I mean... The scale of the opioid epidemic was so gargantuan that it, before COVID-19, it decreased American life expectancy. Mm. Like the average life expectancy of the United States went down because, you know, one company decided that it could make money by addicting people, right? And they just didn't care. And so we as a society should look at that. The question to me that I would love to ask is not why was Elizabeth Holmes prosecuted, but maybe she was just prosecuted because the facts were so clear that anybody could take her down, right? But question is, why weren't other, you know, like, why weren't other people prosecuted? Why is this the only one that could focus on? And that's a question that I've been asking. I don't have a clear answer. There are many others that, uh, uh, and you mentioned the financial crisis is a pretty good 
or pretty mad, but pretty good example um, behavior that was going on. And of course, it's totally defended by people. When I've spoken to you know senior executives at the time, board members, they have all kinds. And they, what they do is they blame the government. They blame uh, Fannie Mae. I don't want to get into all the excuses because it's just, it goes on and on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it, that's right. So, uh, Godin, we have maybe 10 or 15 minutes left. And I have lots of other things I want to, there's no natural segue to, uh, from talking about the Sackler family and these disasters, but there's a bunch of other things I want to talk about and at least get a quick, kind of get a quick sense uh, from you. Uh, so what's going on in Ukraine? So Vladimir Putin has, is destroying Ukraine. How it's all going to end up, nobody knows for sure. Will he invade other countries? Moldova, people are thinking about the Baltics. Is he recreating the uh, the Soviet Union, uh, when you put on your foreign policy hat yeah. and your military hat, how can you help us make sense of what's going on there and what we in the West should be doing that we're not already doing? So this is the sort of questions that I always thought I would spend my life engaged with. And somehow, <laughs> somehow I ended up as a venture capitalist, which, you know, it, <laughs> life's take trajectories you don't expect. I, I always tell my students, right? Like There you so, go, but, zigzag. Zigzag, yeah. But to put that hat back on, which is sort of obviously deep and before I say anything else, I want to preface. Um, so my degree was in international relations and security studies. I spent a lot of time working with and studying the military. I was an advisor, senior advisor to the United States Navy for some time. And so when people with, you know, with this sort of background, when we analyze military situations, we tend to sound very dispassionate, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fact that I am speaking that way does not mean that I feel less powerfully about the incredible tragedy of what's happening in Ukraine or the monstrosities that are being inflicted on the population of Ukraine by Russia. It just means that in the same way that an oncologist speaks about cancer without getting emotional about it, like because they're trained to, this is what people who study security studies do about war. Mm. We don't study war because we like it, but I don't want anyone to think that I sound bloodless because I don't care. That's just not, yeah. But Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But the answer to your question first is the performance of the Ukrainian military has been remarkable and the performance of the Russian military has been remarkable in the exact opposite direction, right? So most analysts who have a really good record, who you trust, thought the Ukrainians had no chance, right? That they would last three days. And that was not a criticism of the Ukrainians, just said that the correlation of forces was such that even given a very skillful defense, they were just out, they were just outmatched. Now, obviously that is not true, right? We reached the point where we are now discuss, you know, where essentially the Ukrainians have won the largest fight of the war, right? They have won the battle for Kiev. The Russians are retreating, and it's hard to imagine a scenario where they come back. And so that is extraordinary. And the scale of the casualties that have been inflicted on the Russian army is such that, from my perspective as a security studies person, it is hard to imagine them conducting successful offensive operations if they do this for, you know, like anywhere in the next five years if they do this for another three to four months. The ballpark estimate is they seem to be taking roughly a thousand casualties a day. And that's a lot, right? Like that's a lot. The Russian army, you know, they're sort of reserve formations that have no real military utility are very large, but in terms of the actual, you know, the forces you would use to fight a front, you know, a war, we're talking about like, you know, maybe 250, 290,000 people, let's say 300,000 people, like a high end. That's not a lot when you're taking, you know, you've been fighting for 42 days and you're taking a thousand casualties a day, right? So I think Vladimir Putin may well have had aspirations to create this kind of larger Russia. But what the Ukrainians have done is shattered them, right? I mean, the, we, our best estimate right now is that the Ukrainians have destroyed, you know, four to five hundred Russian tanks. Russian yeah, tanks. The, it's extraordinary what has happened. And you also, you know, when you talk about the Ukrainian defense, we have to talk about, and this gets to, you know, things we, we both spend time thinking a lot about, 
Ukraine, President Zelensky. And I don't know that that background that he had is one that most of us are going to say is the guy you want in the job, this existential crisis. But yet, you know, the plaudits are there. Uh, he's doing it. Uh, he's been very powerful as a spokesperson. His courage is unquestioned. It seems to be exactly what the country needs. But on paper, none of us would have been voting for this guy uh, for this job. Yeah, I mean, his wartime leadership has been remarkable by any standard. It hasn't been flawless, right? One could easily say that um, they should have mobilized long before they did, and he chose not to give that order, and that was a mistake. But you know, but it's like you're ticky-tacking like small things, right? The large, th- mm-hmm. the large story is remarkable. I feel, you know, like this is again like a story step from stepping from the pages of my book, right? This guy has a totally unlikely background. Turns out that at this moment in time you get the high variance. It's sort of, sort of worth noting, right? That his approval rating in Ukraine before the war was like 20, it was around 25%. Mm. So what you have is this remarkable thing of someone who you know, was not doing well before the war. It turns out that when the circumstances change, mm. the man met the moment, right? In the mm-hmm. same way that I would say that Winston Churchill was not just a, you know, a, a very poor peacetime leader, but you know, as a wartime leader, you know, wasn't that great for most of the war. You know, most of his strategic, uh, the strategic initiatives that he pushed for in the Second World War, the American military was like, no, we're not doing that. That's a dumb idea. And they were, you know, like they were right to say that invading, you know, invading through Yugoslavia. That was a really that was Churchill pushed really hard for that. That was an awful idea. That would have, you know, what a nightmare that would have been. And George Marshall was just like, no, we're not, you know, we're not doing that. That is Mm -hmm. stupid. We are the senior partner in this relationship, and we are not doing it. But in May 1940, Winston Churchill was the only person who could have kept Britain in the war. In May 1940, Winston Churchill, I genuinely would say it is not hyperbole, saved the world, right? If anyone else had been prime minister of Great Britain that time, Britain negotiates for peace. It just, there, no rational person is in that correlation of forces and says, you know, what we need to do is keep fighting. And so you get in Zelensky, the parallel is someone who may or may not have been, you know, I don't know, I'm not an expert in Ukrainian politics. I can't, I don't, can't make an objective assessment of his success as president, but who, you know, the people of Ukraine don't seem to have been very happy with that, you know, suddenly transforms and becomes the person for this thing. And so we have to just give that, give an enormous amount of credit to him. And just, I mean, the scale of bravery, I mean, that guy has got Russian special forces coming for him every single day. And he did not flinch, right? I don't need a ride. I need ammo is going to go down in history. People are going to remember that for a long time. It's a classic. And these examples are under the category. You referenced it earlier when you talk about how luck is important when it comes to leadership success. And I think it's so hard to pick the right CEO for a company, let alone for a country, uh, because you cannot predict what is going to happen. We have all these trajectories and all this analysis, but you know, would we have selected George Bush, George W. Bush, as president, knowing that 9-11 was going to happen? Would we have selected Barack Obama, knowing that the financial crisis was going to happen? Because he had no such background whatsoever in, in that. Would the Ukrainians have selected Zelensky? In business, you see this, you see this a lot as well. I mean, it's a very famous story about Jack Welch, the legendary GE CEO. He was selected by the board of directors because they thought, this guy's going to be a stable leader. We've been through a lot of change. And now we need someone who can kind of ride us through. Well, it could not be more wrong. And this is GE knowing everything about everything. So I find it really uh, remarkable. And it just points out the value, the power, the importance of adaptability, whether you want to use agility, this ability to, and I use the term intellectual honesty also because it means you're facing up to the world the way that it is 
and you're saying, okay, it's not working this way. We can't just continue to do what we've been doing in the past. We got to make adjustments. We got to adapt. We got to adjust. And not everyone has that skill, that ability, that we'll call it that self-confidence really to do that. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. And I think particularly Phil, Phil Tetlock's brilliant work on mm. the extent to which, you know, the, you know, the first book was expert political judgment, right? The extent to which even the most highly credentialed experts essentially are rarely better than random chance at predicting events in their field of the future, in their field of expertise. And this is really striking, right? It just tells us how underdetermined the world is, that there's yeah. just so much so much randomness. And then, I mean, I think your, you know, like your work, um, and then the someone who has really influenced my thinking is Dean Simonton's work out from out in California, right? Where he's done all this look at the traits that lead to leadership success, right? And he sort of, like, the thing that keeps popping out is like cognitive complexity, and the ability to the ability to sort of think about the world as a complex as a complex phenomenon with lots of different variables that interact, and so when something changes, you also change. Yeah. Uh, this seems to be just profound as a driver at across almost every domain of leadership uh, as something that really matters. I, yeah, I, it's absolutely true. The the irony in the political arena is that often that type of behavior is called flip flopping. Yeah, and the media goes after you. I think it's one of the most ridiculous things around because. Are we better off just continuing to go down the path that didn't work before? I mean, is that what we really want? Just about out of time, I want to ask you very quickly, given your background in biology and understanding science, I mean, COVID is still here. We're so much, so much, so much better off than we were. Uh, What's the end game? Um, Are we going to live with this for the next five years, for the next 20 years? It's hard for me to imagine any end game beyond what endemicity, right? It'll become like the flu. Yeah, like a worse version of the flu, but one where we have better treatments, which is awesome. I mean, the scale of the medical miracle and the scientific miracle that we got with COVID is, you know, I think if we step back and we look back five years from now and say, hey, I think it was hard to process. We went from nothing to a 99% effective vaccine in a year, right? I mean, that it is amazing but to be fair the rna research was going on for a couple of decades yeah they didn't have the vaccine but they were able to kind of convert that but yes there's no question about it's kind of unbelievable what's happening and looking forward we should be like well this is great well like the techniques that allowed us to do that with covid are not limited to covid because they were invented without regards to covid we are on the forefront of a medical revolution the scale of which is, you know, boggles the mind. And this is why I spent all that time working in synthetic biology, because this is where it was happening. And I was like, you know what, I can spend my time on leadership and also spend as much time on biology, because I'd be crazy to be at MIT and not get neck deep into this field, right? There's just too much interesting stuff happening. When I think about COVID, I mean, on the upside is not just that we have the vaccines, which are incredibly effective. And my guess is we'll be, you know, we will soon get updated versions of the vaccines, better for these variants. We also got new antivirals, which were developed in the same span of time, right, which are extraordinarily effective at stopping the COVID cases from becoming severe, which is remarkable, right? Like antivirals are the sort of nightmare problem that we've struggled with forever. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we were able to met them in a year. This is remarkable. This is extraordinary. But I do feel like what we're seeing is this, you know, this thing's bag of tricks just keeps, it keeps pulling new things out of its bag, right? Like I remember talking to scientists before Omicron who told me that they thought they thought that COVID had largely exhausted its attack vectors. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's not going to get that much worse because we just don't think it's within the phase space of how this thing can evolve that for it to get much worse. And then we get Omicron, which is almost as contagious as measles. I spent right. a lot of time in biosecurity I never thought I would utter the phrase almost as contagious as measles. Measles is such a crazy outlier in terms of how virulent, you know, like how easy it is to get. 
that with the fact that we have a disease that came out of nowhere that can do that is genuinely, to me, quite shocking. Right. And so, you know, what I hope is I don't wear a mask that much anymore. Right. And, you know, I think no, very few people do. And, but what I hope is that there are some levels of public health interventions that stick with us that we can remember from this. Right. So it doesn't strike me as a, I mean, when I'm on the T, I, I wear a mask. I'm not sure I'm ever going to stop doing that. And I'm not sure it's a bad idea, right? Like, I'll say one, maybe the only good thing about the last couple of years, out of, I mean, my personally, it was great because I got married, but in general, um, <laughs> um, is I never got the flu. I didn't even get a cold. Yeah. You know, I like that. I like not getting a flu in the cold. And it's worth thinking about what we can do to keep that going. Yeah, it, it's been an amazing side effect of this whole thing. And it's because of the, because people were being very careful and the masks. Yeah. So, you know, this has been uh, kind of a good, a great freewheeling conversation, uh, Gotham. I've enjoyed it very much. We've covered a lot of ground. I think we barely got to the uh, the tip of the, I mean, we're at the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other topics uh, that we could talk about, but uh, the hour is up and uh, it's time to uh, say goodbye. This has been great. I appreciate it very much. A live episode of the Sidcast, no less. Uh, the first time we're doing that. So you are an innovator, even, uh, even in that uh, sphere with me. And, um, and I look forward to uh, sharing this with, uh, with my audience around the world as well. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, said It was a pleasure. And send me that case about Theranos. I can't wait to read it. Uh, it's on the way. Everyone Thank be you. well. Thanks for you joining too. us, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The Sidcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative, well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.